Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey team, Oliver here. This week I release a podcast with Andrew Yang, who is one of the headline speakers for the Micromobility America Conference. We're going to have a whole heap of content coming out about that in the next little while, and apologies for the delay in the last couple of weeks. It's been a very busy time on my end, and I'm aiming to get back to a weekly cadence from here on out. I'm really excited to release this conversation that Andrew had with Lauren Good from Wired, talking about the role of micromobility in the future of transport, and also about his attempts to launch a new American political party. That's more on the front end, but I definitely encourage you to stick around and listen in for the conversation that they have towards the end there. I really appreciate it when politicians have such progressive takes and are willing to embrace technology and transport like Andrew does. Here's hoping that there is a bright future ahead for him. And here is the two of them. Let's go. All right, so two amazing people are coming up next. First up, Lauren Good, who is the senior reporter at Wired, also runs their sort of award-winning podcast, and personally, my favorite tech journalist uh, in the world, and it's been for a long time. So I'm so glad to have Lauren up here. And then Andrew Yang. We might know Andrew Yang from being a presidential candidate, a New York City mayor candidate, and has a new book out, and there's some, some rumors about what might be coming next. So please join me with a warm micro-mobility welcome for both of them. Thank you. James. Thank you, Thank you. Hello, micro-mobility. Yes. How fun is this? Voice amplification, technology of the future. <laughs> I just got a message from Kara Swisher. Do you think I should check it? Uh, I talked to Kara yesterday. All right. <laughs> uh, Andrew, thank you so much for joining me at this micromobility conference. I wanted to ask you how you got here today. I got here via plane mm -hmm. and then friend uh, and then Activo scooter in the parking lot and then one wheel in the atrium I, I, and then my legs. <laughs> so you were trip, to the stage. trip chaining quite a bit. Multimodal, um, you would say. Multimodal. Right? It's a big buzzword today. Uh, so we're going to talk a lot about micromobility and personal transport devices. But I think first we need to talk about the elephant in the room, which is your new political party. Uh, tell us what you're up to now. Well, thank you for asking. Uh, <laughs> how many of you think that politics is working great right now? No one, really. And so not a single ask, person. Yeah, not a single yeah. person here. Uh, and so you have to ask yourself, if you were in a market and there was a duopoly and a majority of the market actually wanted an alternative to the duopoly, why is there not an, a, a viable alternative that's come up in the last number of decades? And so that's a need that a lot of people uh, have been examining. And I think I figured out a way to make that happen in true Silicon Valley fashion. There is a weak spot in the system that will enable us to have true political diversity uh, of opinion and hopefully make our democracy function better. So that's what I'm working on right now. I know it sounds a little bit cryptic and too good to be true, uh, but the 
new party will be launching on October 5th. And I have to say, these are exactly the sort of people that would love it uh, because we have to move our country forward rather than continue to have this doom loop of these two sides that are just going to, to clash us all into oblivion. So uh, I think Business Insider may have uh, scooped you a little bit. There was just a story that ran a few hours ago where they had said in your book you offered more detail about this political party. Uh, it's, is it called Forward? Is that accurate? It's not left or right. It's Forward. That's right. It's Forward. Mm -hmm. I have a book coming out on October 5th that breaks down why we need to head in this direction. That's right. That is also the title of the book that's coming out. Yes, I'm not very imaginative. Uh, there's going to be a lot of Forward-named stuff coming out. Right. And also your, one of your other organizations is called Humanity Forward. So I'm sensing a theme here. Okay. And this so, conference has just been renamed Micromobility Forward. Is, <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, so talk a little bit about what the tenets or principles are of this new party that you plan to launch. Uh, I, I go into it in greater detail uh, and we're going to be doing a series of press around it a little bit later. Um, but some of the tenets aren't going to surprise anyone around universal basic income, which I believe is imperative, uh, fact-based governance, modern and effective government. Uh, these are things that are achievable if we actually have a degree of both innovation and accountability in our system that we don't have right now. And it seems, though, that there is something of a history of third political parties failing, right? And that's partly, largely due to the way that our current government is structured, right? Uh, the way it's structured is that it, there needs to be a plurality, and of course there is the Electoral College. And so that seems to have hindered efforts like this before. Why do you think your solution is going to work this time? I do want to rewind a little bit, where if you look at the vision of the founding fathers of this country, we're living one of their worst nightmares. Uh, they were not pro-political party. You don't see a word about political parties in the Constitution or any of the founding documents. And they were actually feared factionalism, which unfortunately is what we have right now. If you look around the world at any mature democracy, you'll see that the number of parties ranges typically between half a dozen and 17 in the Netherlands. The United States is an anomaly in this dysfunctional duopoly. So if anything, what we should be asking is, why have we accepted this level of dysfunction for so long? Now, there is a structural impediment to any third party arising. And we all know it very, very well, which is that it's difficult to win races when you have closed primary system. Uh, and so it's hard to get media attention. It's hard to get supporters. No one likes to, to do something that's not going to yield results. And so if you are in a third party, we've all been conditioned to think that it's going to be futile uh, and you're not actually going to be able to make the changes that you want. You should play in the existing sandboxes. I obviously have some experience playing in those sandboxes. But if you actually were to create a mechanism where people could have their own viewpoint expressed without fear of being bludgeoned, frankly, that you're going to enable like the, the, you know, the bad guys or the worst guys to win, then you would see an, a, a completely different political landscape in the United States of America. And I'm going to suggest to you all that we're here in the Bay Area. We've seen innovation in transportation and our way of life in ways big and small why are we not seeing that innovation at the political level? We can make it happen, and that's going to be what I'm going to unveil uh, in early October.
I can see you're doing a good job here of, of pushing people to October, and, and I'm, I'm going to keep asking you questions about this. Uh, let's just take one of, those, uh, one, of, one of these principles that you seem to be a pro proponent of, which is ranked choice voting, right? How is something like that, do you think, uh, in primaries in particular, how is that going to revolutionize our current system? Ranked choice voting, how many of you know a lot about ranked choice voting? Raise your hand if you know a lot about Some it. Some people do. This but it's also, very, very I think, confusing crowd. for a lot of people, right? Uh, so ranked choice voting is a system where people rank multiple candidates, and the first person, first candidate, oh, just an iPhone. who gets more than 50% of the voters then becomes the, the winner. And there are so many advantages to ranked choice voting. Number one is it eliminates what's called the spoiler effect, which is if you vote for someone who doesn't win, let's say a third party candidate, then your vote will just go on to another candidate, let's say a major party candidate, so all of a sudden you have no downside of voting for the minor candidate. It also discourages negative campaigning because if I trash my opponent and there are a bunch of people in the field, then maybe you like my, my trashy less, but you also like me less, and then a third person will end up benefiting. So there are many benefits to ranked choice voting. This is another archaic mechanism we've been saddled with, which is this plurality voting system. If you'd had a ranked choice voting system during the Republican primary when Trump ran in 2016, he almost certainly would not have won that nomination. Because if you look at the numbers, he was getting more votes than any of the other candidates, but he wasn't getting 51% of the votes. If the other voters had been able to rank their candidates, you probably would have seen another non-Trump candidate emerge. So when you look at some of the problems we've been struggling with, and I think a lot of people here would appreciate this, they're actually process problems. And we're being distracted by this clash, saying, oh, you know, vote for this person, don't vote for this person, when really it's the plumbing that we have to fix. I love talking to you all about this because I feel like this is your language, am I right? But also you have, you have a, a well-worn reputation for talking to people who you wouldn't normally perhaps identify as a progressive, right? You kind of like to talk across both sides of the political spectrum. And what do you think about this new party is going to appeal to both sides of, of the, on the political aisle? Lauren, I loved running for president. Uh, and I presented a case that was natural to me, which was born out of facts and technology and economic trends. Uh, and... I was stunned by the fact that we ended up activating a whole different set of people that weren't even natively political. Down the stretch of my campaign, someone did a survey and it showed that 42% of the people that supported me weren't traditional Democrats. I'm going to suggest again that this resembles many of the people who are here today, where some of you work in technology, uh, you want things to work better, you see what's going on in our political system and it's disheartening. Those are some of the people that my campaign helped to activate. And the goal is to take some of that sense of optimism and possibility and innovation and insert it into our political system. Um, it, it's strange to me that we've been waiting this long. And I was surprised myself at the fact that the language of facts was a new political language. But facts actually end up being really appealing to people on any side of the political spectrum, whether you're progressive, independent, libertarian, democratic, or republican. And so that's one reason why if you survey people of different political alignments, a lot of them will say, you know, I don't agree with Yang on everything, but, you know, like, uh, I, uh, I can listen to him. <laughs> <laughs> 
let's uh, let's talk about tech. Actually, I mean, you're often identified as a tech entrepreneur. You are an entrepreneur, um, and I think that a lot of people saw you and still probably see you as a very technocratic candidate. Um, but at the same time, you I mean, you didn't hold back from from critiquing the technology industry during some of your campaigning, right? Yeah, you talked about large corporations paying more taxes, uh, for example. How has your thinking about the tech industry evolved over the past couple of years in particular? I'm a fan of technology and innovation, but I think most people here realize that there are excesses that have taken place. Uh, I'm also a parent. I've got two young kids who are eight and six. Uh, they're growing up completely differently than I did. I grew up the son of Taiwanese immigrants in upstate New York, playing Dungeons and Dragons and re reading sci-fi with my brother. Uh, and I, I see the way my kids are growing up. Uh, they love their screens. Um, my, one of my sons literally said that his iPad is his best friend. Uh, and uh, I know that my experience is not unique at all. Uh, so we should be trying to integrate what technology can do for us all uh, with our own well-being, our family's well-being, and right now, we sense that tech companies are great at solving market-based problems. But there are negative externalities that have arisen. And again, our government is so behind the curve that all these externalities are completely going unaddressed. So to me, there is a balance that should be drawn. I think most people who work in technology would agree with that. Maybe we should talk about micromobility. Actually, I have one more quick question for you. When you think about um, this movement forward, um, does this, does this new political party, is this a vehicle for you in 2022, 2024? What, what, what do the next couple of years look like for you in those regards? We're going to be very focused on 2022 in helping change the process so that people are rewarded less for extremity. Right mm -hmm. now, if you look at members of Congress on either side, they're selected by the 20% most ideologically extreme in their districts. And 83% of districts are non-competitive. By, by that I mean they're safely Democratic or safely Republican. So if you put a reasonable legislator into this system, they will quickly conclude that their incentives are best served by trying to placate the most extreme 20% in their district. And their goal is not to avoid a challenge in the general, because again, 83% of these districts are foregone conclusions in the general. Their political incentives are just to avoid getting primary. So these incentives will drive people on both sides towards seeming less reasonable, more extreme, less prone to compromise. And so this is something that we can change in November 2022. We can unlock our legislators from this extremity by adopting a system of ranked choice voting and open primaries that lets them appeal to 51% of the people in their district and not the most extreme 20%. That's the big process change we have to make. So that, to me, is a here and now problem, uh, and we hope to make progress on it in November 22. Thank you. So um, we're at this amazing conference. Uh, you had the chance to ride some of these personal transport devices earlier. I brought sneakers so that I can hop on some afterwards. Um, some really cool innovations happening here today, being shown off here today. Um, but this sort of this industry or this uh, sort of subsection of the transport industry does face some challenges. And some of those are at the municipal level, some are the state level, some are just about our sort of general acceptance as a nation of these kinds of personal transport devices. What do you see as the greatest challenge right now to micromobility becoming more mainstream? 
I'm gonna tell some stories about my uh, running for mayor of New York City. So first, a little bit about me personally. I own four uh, e-scooters of different makes. I love them. Uh, I uh, haven't yet had my kids ride them independently. I put one of the, them on the front and uh, ride around with, with him on it. Um, and it's difficult to integrate these e-scooters into a city like New York um, because the natural temptation very quickly is to ride on the, the sidewalk, <laughs> which is against the rules. Uh, and even the bike lanes, the, in, the interaction between e-bikes and e-scooters and cyclists uh, isn't always optimal and ideal because the, uh, you're going at different speeds um, and um, the infrastructure is really just set up for one mode, which is bikes. So I think the biggest obstacle to micromobility is that we have infrastructure that is set up for legacy modes, whether that's cars most often, uh, bikes to some extent, pedestrians to some extent. And the reality is that if you were to optimize a community for e-scooters or e-bikes, it would look significantly different. Very difficult to do in a city that's already optimized for something else, and by the way, you have limited municipal funds. And so if you're gonna choose to spend it on, on something, you know, it's hard to repurpose. So that to me is the greatest obstacle. The greatest opportunity then on the flip side would be communities that can actually integrate and prioritize e-scooters and e-bikes and other micro-mobility devices from day one. And I think that would be a massive competitive advantage for some of those communities or developments in terms of attracting young people in particular. I think you can sense that I love these devices. <laughs> that, that I do. I mean. You know, uh, and I would love nothing more than to see entire communities being able to, to take advantage of them. Um, they're better for the environment, they're better for our mental health, uh, they're, uh, they're less costly uh, in terms of the sort of infrastructure you have to set up. I mean, there are so many wins, but I will say on a native human level, most of all, they're just fun, they're a blast. Like, I, I think they're just better for our mental health. I believe that about biking too. Uh, I think biking is great exercise and good for our mental health. Uh, and to me, a lot of the e-scooters are in the same camp. I think there are a lot of people who have safety concerns. Those are, those are pretty legitimate concerns. Um, it might be a roadblock in particular. I mean, you talk about traveling with your kids on a bike. Um, some people have concerns about that. How do you think that cities and states should be addressing safety as more and more of these personal transport devices are rolled out into the market? And this is one of the things I was suggesting about the interaction. Mm -hmm. um, so one thing I'll say, um, in your, if you're in New York City, there's a bike lane. Let's say to get to the West Side Highway, you cross the bike lane um, and then you get to the walkway. So what someone does very naturally is they look at the bikeway to see if a bike's coming and then they start walking. Um, E-bikes sometimes are moving so quickly that you can look a direction, think you're clear, and then by the time you're walking, like, <laughs> it'll actually enter the picture. Um, so. There is, a, again, a safety issue if you're trying to mix and match some of these modes and infrastructure that's not designed for it. And then if you have a negative occurrence, you know that's mm -hmm. going to make headlines in a very, very big way. Where there was a scooter company in New York City that had, I believe, a fatality, mm -hmm. uh, and it made negative headlines, and all of a sudden people wanted to look at it, which is legitimate, obviously. I mean, if someone dies, uh, then you, you have to, to examine the practice and see whether uh, it makes sense for, for the community. So. This is related to what I, I uh, regarded as the greatest obstacle. 
Uh, and we are in political environments where if you have a negative injury or fatality, you know that everyone's going to, to want to ban it as quickly as possible. So for the future growth of micro-mobility, micro you have to try and make sure that people are riding in environments that are not going to result in that kind of uh, injury or, or even fatality. What do you think that the pandemic has done for micromobility or to micromobility? Uh, it seems like, for example, scooters were kind of on this path uh, in certain cities around the U.S. prior to that. And then for a while, it just, we didn't go anywhere, right? Essential workers, of course, had to get from point A to B. Uh, people did have to go places. But in a lot of cases, um, scooters were untouched for a while. And now there's this kind of reemergence happening. I'm wondering if you see any kind of rethinking that's notable to you around this. I would love to talk to people in the industry about how COVID has affected uh, your businesses, your companies, because I feel like it's cut in a number of directions. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think on one side, people uh, probably bought more scooters. <laughs> is, that, is that correct? I'm not sure if that's right. Yeah, someone gave me the thumbs up. Um, because uh, they were in circumstances where uh, they were going to be working from home more uh, or they were in an environment where um, that was the best way for them to be able to, uh, you know, get something to eat. So I, I feel like that would be a very positive drive, and I think that that's one reason why you're seeing some of these political issues mm -hmm. rise, because someone buys a device, they love it, they use it, they ride it, and then enough people do it, and then there's a problem, and then everyone looks up and says, okay, uh, you know, what are we gonna do to, to try and make sure that people can use these safely? The thing to avoid is that overreaction, where, I, and I think that is a real concern, is that if bad things happen and then people complain, then they'll say these devices are a nuisance, when you have to try and balance the good with the bad. There's so much intrinsic good to micro-mobility. Micro it's a bit of a mouthful, micro-mobility. Yeah. <laughs> What would you name it, the conference, if you had to rename it? Micromobility is a cool name. I mean, you, you understand what it is. You maybe, call it micromobility maybe, forward. Yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe yeah. it needs a forward in there somewhere. Maybe my micro forward mobility, something like micro, that. Hmm, needs to workshop it, I think. I wouldn't do that to them, though. Yeah. Um, I mean, would you look at... What, there's so many interesting companies here, right? Like... The, when you look at the way this industry is headed, I tend to wonder if, let's just take a company like Lyft, for example, who I know is here today, right? And Lyft has some multimodal solutions. They have car solutions. They have, um, they did have, you know, Lyft pool. I don't know if now you can take rides with other people because of COVID. Um, there are bikes, there are scooters, right? And I, I kind of wonder if, ultimately what's going to happen is we're going to see this movement towards a few companies owning the multimodal experiences, or if there's going to be a great unbundling where there are just so many different options, right? People are able to sort of effectively trip chain using different modes from different providers and like what that looks like. Where do you see that going in the future? Well, the way you're asking the question uh, seems to suggest that one would be better than, than the other. I'm going to attach no moral judgment to it. But, I mean, we are seeing kind of ownership of certain companies over our technology experiences now, right? And we know how that's turning out. Yeah, and I think this is one of the excesses that I referred to earlier, where, where we're in an environment where a lot of the economic forces lead towards consolidation. And then if you have a company that achieves what Tim O'Reilly calls super money, <laughs> where you have a market mm -hmm. cap where all of a sudden you can start right. uh, gobbling up other companies, 
um, that then the field consolidates very quickly. Uh, and that's where you would probably guess that a, a lot of industries are, are going to wind up over time, um, which is something I'm not a fan of. Uh, I think that we should be examining uh, consolidation and acquisitions more when there's an industry that, uh, you know, could end up looking like a duopoly or a monopoly even at the extremes. I, I love little companies, I love innovation. I, I ran a small private company myself uh, for a number mm -hmm. of years, that's how I came up. And it was the time of my life. You know, I, I feel like I became like an adult in that role. Uh, you feel like you're the head of a household when you run a small private company. I think a lot of you have that experience. Uh, and then we were bought by a public company and I thought that I would dig it and I really didn't. <laughs> so because of that, I have an instinctive uh, alignment with uh, little, uh, little businesses that have made it work. When you look at how government resources are allocated around transportation in particular, how much do you think should be focused on, let's say, the electrification of mass transit systems versus um, creating more structure or providing more support around personal transport devices, which I think we're, we're all agreeing here today are, are pretty cool, uh, right? But uh, sometimes, you know, the focus, the emphasis on a shift in personal behavior doesn't necessarily enact the change, and we're seeing that with climate change too, right? That needs to come from sort of top-down or systemic level. Talk about electrification of transit systems and, and how much we should be devoting to that. Uh, when I was running for mayor, I wanted to electrify New York City's fleet because you could make a big difference very quickly. Uh, I wanted to electrify the buses. I wanted to electrify the garbage trucks, which was the hardest one. Uh, electric garbage trucks was... <laughs> Why is that the hardest one? Well, it, it just it was very, very expensive uh, to have an electric garbage truck. But I was going to do it. I was like, this is totally where we should be spending um, uh, our money. I think bang for your buck in terms of being able to alleviate emissions uh, and improve our energy signature, public mass transport is the way to go. Uh, and in some ways, you can make that change more quickly and efficiently because even though it's very expensive, you don't have a multitude of decision makers. And if you decided to go that direction, uh, you could make progress pretty quickly. So I'm a huge proponent of public investment in that space. Um, and I would suggest that if you succeeded in that, you'd probably see adoption of uh, uh, e-scooters and other things by consumers at the same time. Mm -hmm. Because if you were used to electric vehicles, then uh, I think it would improve everyone's comfort level. Mm -hmm. You're also a, a big proponent of universal basic income. You've called it the freedom dividend. Um, and I'm wondering how you see that, or if you do see that, if there's any correlation between that and uh, better transit systems, how that works. I think if everyone had a certain level of income, you would see adoption of micromobility go up because I think if more people had more money in their pocket, they'd probably run out and buy one of these devices. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know where that would fall on the priority list for UBI, but well, it's an interesting thought. Someone commented on the way in. Uh, someone said, like, how much is this device? And then they said, you know, one month of UBI. And, and so I, I have a feeling that, uh, that adoption would pick up. Um, but if people had money in their pocket, they would also be able to make better transit choices themselves, uh, be able to balance their own needs in a more effective way. Right now we're making all of these bizarre time, money, energy trade-offs where someone is 
spending an extra hour or two to save 10 bucks to, to get to a certain place. So if you were to put money into people's hands, they would make, I think, more efficient decisions. Uh, and, and I think that would end up improving both our infrastructure and people's personal choices. And in the time since you uh, first introduced UBI as part of both your presidential and mayoral campaigns, um, has your thinking on that evolved at all? Have you, even the amount, have you thought about a different amount that people might need? What experiments seem to be working for you right now? I, you all remember when I was running for president saying everyone should get $1,000 a month, and mm -hmm. people thought of it as fanciful uh, or far out. And now we're living versions of that. I think we all know this, right? I mean, <laughs> someone's laughing. I mean, uh, tens of millions of Americans got the $1,400 check, the $600 check, the $1,200 check. Uh, 70 million Americans are getting a child tax credit of typically $600 a month mm -hmm. over the, the last number of months. Uh, it's alleviated poverty in those families. Now, if anything, Andrew Yang's $1,000 a month plan doesn't seem aggressive enough. You know what I mean? Like people are like, oh, 1000 Why stop there? <laughs> so uh, I, I'm a huge supporter of this child tax credit. My only complaint is that it's not in perpetuity. Um, and that it doesn't go to people that don't have kids. So would you, in a future campaign, um, basically ex not only extend UBI as you've put forward, but actually change the amount that American households would be getting? No, I, I think we should be in position to think bigger. Uh, $1,000 a month still seems like a fairly uh, good sweet spot because it's enough to lift people out of poverty still, um, but it, it's not enough to completely distort one's incentives because it's just a, a foundation. Uh, but I'm, I'm open to more, and we're getting more data all of the time. The two big objections I got when I ran for president, and this is something that many of you can relate to. Uh, a neuroscientist in Seattle said to me that, Andrew, your enemy is the human mind, because the human mind is programmed for resource scarcity. And when you go around saying that you can give everyone money, it doesn't compute for a lot of people. And he was right in that the biggest objections I got when I was running for president on this were, number one, where do you get the money? At this point, this has been addressed because we've all seen that uh, the CARES Act, $2.2 trillion, the Rescue Plan, $2 trillion. The $2.2 trillion CARES Act was enough to give every American $1,000 a month for six months. Uh, families got 17% of the $2.2 trillion. We always had the money. We could have done it any time we wanted to. And then the second objection I got was people aren't going to spend the money wisely. And we're seeing what people spend the money on in real life, and it's exactly what you'd expect it to be, food, groceries, fuel, trying to find work. So the main objections I encountered as a presidential candidate have essentially resolved themselves. It's one reason why today a majority of Americans are for basic income in some form. 80% are for cash relief during the pandemic, which unfortunately we're still dealing with. Um, so I, I'm thrilled and incredibly grateful to everyone who helped us make this case nationally. We've improved tens of millions of people's lives. I mean, uh, the fact anyone who supported me, you should really feel that. You should know that we helped advance and accelerate the end of poverty in our time, but we are not done. The truth is that the dysfunction in Washington is going to keep us from enacting obvious solutions that would make people's lives better. I used to think that the problem was that people didn't know about universal basic income and I was determined to change that. Now I think the problem is that our government is not actually responsive to the people of this country. And my next mission is to change that too. I think that's a great place to wrap and I think we're pretty much out of time. So Andrew, thank you so much. Micromobility, it's been a blast.
Ah, it's great to be here. Let's give it up for Lauren as well. Yay, Lauren. 